the doctrine of the Word of God. And we have been looking at the canon, the canon of Scripture. Uh, we said that canon is the word for standard, for rule, for measure. So, um, and then uh, we um, read uh, Article 4, which lists all the canonical books as we have them in our Bible. Um, we talked last week about how these canonical books um, were differentiated from other books that were also written. Uh, in the case of the Old Testament, uh, the additional or extra or other books um, have been known as the apocryphal books or the hidden or the obscure books. And these, these were books that were not received by the Jews, right? We read last week that the Jews had the oracles of God. I think it's, it'd be good to uh, maybe look at that scripture again in Romans chapter 3. Let us begin by reading that scripture, uh, Romans 3, um, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. It says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? And notice what advantage the Apostle Paul ascribes to them in verse 2. It says, Much in every way, mainly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So notice, the Jews received the oracles of God, the prophetic word. It was committed to them. So the Jewish, right, the people of Israel, the Jewish community, and the tradition, right, of those that began to record Holy Writ, um, it was done by the Jews. So what, what the Jews um, recognized as the Holy Scriptures, as the canon, of the Old Testament scriptures is what we also recognize, understanding, recognizing that God committed to them, right, that deposit of holy writ in the Old Testament. So, um, because to them were committed the oracles of God, to mine comes also the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. So, meaning that the scriptures were given to them, it is through that historical, covenantal history of, uh, of revelation and redemption throughout the people of Israel, the Jewish people, that we see where the canon is, where that rule of scripture that is inspired by God is. So we said then that the Jews did not recognize the apocryphal books. They never recognized them in their canon. Um, neither Jesus nor the apostles cited from the apocryphal books. And in addition to that, uh, a lot of these books come not from the Hebraic context, but in addition to that, uh, there's a lot of Greek um, a Greek milieu, 
a Greek context to the apocryphal books um, that really is not in continuation with the Hebrew, the Jewish scriptures. So on that basis, uh, we concur, right, even with some historical witness like Josephus um, and some early uh, Christian fathers that also, even though they were aware of the apocryphal books, but did not recognize them as inspired scripture. That is not to say that they wouldn't read them, that they wouldn't even perhaps cite them in their works, in the letters of those early Christian fathers, uh, in which to say that there could be something helpful or something that could be learned from these books, but it is clear that there seemed to have been an understanding by all of these witnesses that the apocryphal books were not on par with the Old Testament canon as we have received them from, uh, from the Jewish people, uh, from also Jesus and the witness of the apostles. In addition to that, the apocryphal books came a couple of centuries later or after the canon of the Jewish uh, scriptures had been closed with Malachi. So the time of Malachi is mid-fifth century before Christ. And the time of these apocryphal books where they begin to be written, it's 200 years later, like 200 in the 200s before the coming of Christ. So there's a gap of a couple of centuries between Malachi and when these apocryphal books begin to be written. Um, and then we began to talk about some uh, criteria for the New Testament scriptures, that um, they also came to be received and recognized by the church. And the criteria was, and we said several things, uh, number one, that it had to have apostolic, either apostolic origin or endorsement in terms of the scripture having been written by either an apostle or a companion of an apostle or somebody that was in direct connection and link with them so that it had the content, the apostolic message to them. So that is a, a, a huge uh, uh, mark for New Testament scripture. Um, we also said that these scriptures came to be received early by the corporate church. Not necessarily by everyone, but immediately as the letters began to be circulated in the Gospels, the church as a whole recognized the New Testament canon, the scriptures of the New Testament. And then we said that there is the internal witness of Scripture itself. That it's not that anyone determined that they were Scriptures per se, as the Roman Catholic Church claims that eventually it was the Roman Catholic Church that in assembly and council determined what the Scriptures were, but it wasn't so. Because by the end of the first century and into early second century, we already have early witnesses citing the four Gospels and citing the Pauline epistles, 
and um, Hebrews, and then there was a couple of, uh, of books that uh, came to be recognized later, but were, were, were also being cited. Um, so it wasn't as if in the 4th century, eventually, the Roman Catholic Church, which there wasn't a Roman Catholic Church per se then to speak of, but it wasn't as if they were the ones that determined what Scripture was. There was eventually uh, a council at the end of the 5th century that put the stamp of recognition saying, yeah, these are the books that we recognize to be the canonical books of the New Testament in the Council of Carthage at the end of the 5th century. But long before that, in the, in the 2nd century, you have early witnesses in the transition from the apostles onto the apostolic fathers, those that had connections to them, that were already mentioning the books, and there's fragments, um, and by the, the middle into the last part of the second century, you already had a list that included almost all the books of the, of the New Testament, but for a couple of letters, you know, the second, like second and third John, second Peter, um, there was a question as to Hebrews, you know, uh, and Revelation. So these were being discussed, but uh, were not per se in some of the mention of lists that were given in, in um, what came to be known as a Muratorian canon. But by the second century, you already have all the books of the New Testament being discussed, uh, being mentioned, and being compiled into lists. Um, and in distinction from the uh, spurious false gospels and letters that came to be written in the second century. So the fact that they were already compiling books put together in book form, it's interesting, already by the second century, even there may be indications from the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul tells um, his companion to bring, is it Titus or Timothy now? Bring the books. He says, bring the, bring the, the, the papyra and then bring the parchments, which those parchments were the way that um, the Christian church began to put together books in cover and leaves. And that... Uh, adapted itself very well to having certain books and not others. You know, papyrus is it's like a scroll, and you write on one side, and that's the way that it had been uh, in antiquity, that what had been used for ancient writing, okay? But it is interesting that it was Christians that began to use uh, what's called, uh, what we would call the book, form, it was called codex. So the codexes um, the, the, where, where Greco-Roman writers and literature used them much later, Christians were already using the codex in order to put together in those codexes the four gospels in distinction from other gospels, for example, or the letters of Paul, um, or, you know, uh, a gospel and, and, and the book of Acts. 
and things like that. So it lent itself in book form to compile and to receive the books that were being recognized by the Christian church, as opposed to just having several loose papyrus, right? Um, so we talked about that uh, last week. And today we want to see more of this internal claims, the internal claims of Scripture, um, what Scripture says about itself, and also the prophetic apostolic message that they um, communicated. And then we also want to close tonight um, emphasizing that the Scriptures are self-authenticating, self-validating as a canon that it does not need an outside source to determine what Scripture is, but Scripture itself is the rule, the ultimate rule that validates itself as the Word of God. And we read that in Article 5. In Article, let's read tonight to begin in the Belgian Confession, Article 5 and 6. They're short. It says, From whence... It's not a question. It says, from whence the Holy Scriptures derive their dignity and authority. That's Article 5. It says, we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them. Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but more especially because the Holy Ghost witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, whereof they carry the evidence in themselves. For the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are fulfilling. Article 6, the difference between the canonical and apocryphal books. We distinguish these sacred books from the apocryphal. Example, for instance, the third and fourth book of Esdras, the book of Tobias, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus, Sirach, Baruch, the appendix to the book of Esther, the song of the three children in the furnace, the history of Susanna, of Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of the Maccabees. All of which... The church may read and take instruction from, from so far as they agree with the canonical books, but they are far from having such power and efficacy as that we may from their testimony confirm any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less to detract from the authority of the other sacred books. So notice a distinction is made between the canonical books and the apocryphal from the authority of the canonical books and any authority in the apocryphal books, but an allowance is made to say there could be something of value to learn from them insofar as they agree with the canonical books. In the same way that we read today commentaries from Luther, from Calvin, and others, they had these other books and they examined them 
and there was something worthwhile and something edifying, well, it could be used and read in the Christian churches. So that's, um, have, as we want to take uh, the distinction there and the use of these other uh, books. So let's take a look once again at a couple of passages here to get going. Um, <clears throat> we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be going quickly through these scriptures, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the prophetic word, this is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. So we see here an understanding that there is a prophetic word, a rule, a canon, a word that we do well to heed, to pay attention to. In verse 20 and 21, we hear, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it is not of anything that anybody wants to say, but these Scriptures are briefed out, as we have read, by God, and it is in keeping with the redemptive purposes of God and the revelation of Christ uh, for the salvation of the world. We read also in Second Peter, uh, or we read now in Second Peter three verses fifteen through sixteen, the following. Second Peter 3, beginning verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist, to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So notice now, we begin to hear of the Scriptures by Paul as part of the Scriptures, as part of the, the wider canonical writings that people misunderstand, twist, right? Um, <clears throat> as they also do the rest of the Scriptures. So, we have here this internal evidence for not only the Old Testament Scriptures as canon, but also the New Testament canon that is already being circulated, uh, as in the case of the letters of the Apostle Paul. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. We did read that, 10 through 12, of this salvation. So what are the Scriptures testifying to? What are the internal self-claims, self-validating evidence and power of the Scriptures that they're testifying to the salvation that the prophets have been, that have inquired and searched, as it says here, and then prophesied. One of the things about the apocryphal or the false uh, gospels and other writings is that they provide a different understanding, 
a different concept, a different view of salvation. It is not this salvation that the scriptures are testifying to in Christ by grace through faith. So he says, searching what or who prophets, I'm sorry, verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So we see here that the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, the canonical writings are testifying to that person and the work of Christ and redemption through him. So the New Testament scriptures will have a continuity of fulfillment to what the Old Testament scriptures have prophesied of the grace that would come. Verse 12, to them it was revealed and not to themselves, but to us. So Paul is saying to us, to this New Testament, the fullness of time, people, not only Jews but Gentiles, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you. So the prophets and the canon, the Jewish canon, was not just Jewish, but it was the Christian canon. Because he was testifying to Christ. And he was testifying to Christ so that both the Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles, would receive these things as a salvation that God has revealed. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you. So there has to be a continuity between both both scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. A continuity, a connection, a harmony, right? That's why Jesus says that scriptures cannot be broken, you know? <clears throat> so, have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So now notice also, not only the prophets of the Old Testament spoke and prophesied of these things, but now the apostles, to those who have preached the gospel to you, who? The apostles. And the companion of the apostles. The, the, the apostolic message. Okay? So here we have the internal evidence, the self-authenticating rubric, so to speak, that the scripture gives you to recognize inspired writ, inspired, the inspired word of God. Those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit send from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Um, <clears throat> let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, another important scripture that we've already mentioned. 2 Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> beginning in verse um, 15, we hear the following there. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what the Scriptures are about. Okay? The Scriptures are self-authenticating because they reveal Christ. So we cannot go outside of the Scriptures for the revelation of Christ. They reveal Christ... 
And that is a self-witness of the Scripture to us, obviously, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes use of Scripture, of inspired writings, illuminating our minds with it to know the truth. So it says, um, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. What this means, this is a very important term here, given the Scriptures are breathed out. They are breathed out of God. So the Word of God, it's not that, oh, the writer somehow felt an inspiration, and then they wrote as they wished, you know, having gotten the muse, so to speak, right? No. God gave them the breathed out writing for them to speak. Obviously, within the author's mind and context and style of writing, it doesn't negate or cancel that. But what they wrote within their emotional, stylistic, and cultural apparatus that they had with themselves and their minds... However, they wrote what God breathed out through them, okay? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we hear the following there. For this reason, we also, Paul says, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men. Notice that? So here we're in the presence of holy, inspired scripture. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Notice that? They did not need to go to an outside source and say, oh, is this the Word of God? It, the Word of God self-authenticates, self-validates, right? In the, in the presence of the hearers. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, right, is at work to make that happen. So notice, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. We said that's another internal evidence of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, that it is transformative. The power of Scripture to grip someone to transform a life, okay? To convert a soul. Let's take a look at John chapter 21. Let's see here the words of Christ in John 21. Beginning in verse 24, we hear, uh, no, the words of the beloved disciple. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So notice the, the, the holy, holy writing here and the apostle is saying, I testify of these things. I wrote these things, and this testimony is true. Verse 25, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. 
<clears throat> so there could be other scriptures, other books, as we know they were. The Apostle Paul wrote other letters, right? So they may have written other books, but they were not received as canonical. It would not recognize as canonical. God knew what his canon was and what he put forward and was received and recognized by the church in that self-witness of the Word of God. It are the canonical scriptures and not anything else outside of what we have received. Uh, let's take a look at 1 John chapter 5. The same apostle, notice what he says here in 1 John. <clears throat> 1 John chapter uh, 5. Let's see. Mm. 1 John 5, um, 13. <clears throat> These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the scriptures testify to etern eternal life in Christ, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So this is the apostolic message. We also have it at the, in the opening of the letter. The Apostle John says in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, <coughs> which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write, notice, we write to you that your joy may be full. So here we are, right in the presence of the canon of the New Testament. Hmm? The apostolic message, the apostolic witness that testifies to salvation in Christ. And then the reception, the corporate reception of them by the body of Christ. <clears throat> let's take a look now. Let's go to the Old Testament and see some interesting things there. Let's go to the book of the prophet Amos. Amos uh, chapter 3, verse 7. So we have heard from the apostles making reference to the prophets of the Old Testament. And we have seen then that there is uh, in the letters we hear, in the New Testament letters, we hear of this canon of the prophetic word in the Old Testament and of the New Testament. Now notice here in the Old Testament, also some internal claims that the word makes. A Amos 3 verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to his servants, the prophets. So notice that. Notice that God is interesting, interested in recording, in holy writ, in inspired scripture, his works. What God is going to do, he or what he does, he tells the prophets. And the prophets write 
the deeds and the works of God. So no scripture is a private interpretation or of any sort of fanciful imagination or not related to God's redemptive works. So when God moves and does something, He's always then speaking the prophetic word of the redemptive actions and works that He has done. So that's something to keep in mind. Hmm? That's how He speaks to the prophet. When God works, He speaks. He speaks about His works. Those two go together. So, and he works his redemption, right? Which has come in the form of covenants, right? In the covenantal progression from the old covenant to the new. Or, and more specifically, theologically, from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace, right? So what God has done in history, in which He has worked covenantally, works of redemption, and has expressed it in covenants, then it's been recorded in holy writ, in inspired scripture. This is a powerful argument for those self-proclaimed prophets and apostles of today. To say that there is prophets and apostles that have authority to speak a word from God, would be to say that God is moving and working something redemptively. And He's already done that. He's already done that. So the prophetic word now is the holy scriptures that we have. And we speak prophetically when we speak from the word of God and the canon and the covenant that God has sealed. Hence, revelation is finished. And nothing else remains to be disclosed because God's works are finished. The Son of God finished the work of God of the Father, entered into uh, heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And rested from his works. Nothing else remains to be prophesied of. And to be revealed. Because he has done the work. And he has finished it. And then he has spoken it. And that's what we hear in Hebrews, right? God in times past and in many different ways has spoken. Right? But now he has spoken to us in a definitive and final manner, in and through the Son. This clarity helps tremendously, right? It gives us great understanding uh, to be able to be at peace, right? Because people come speaking a word of God, a word from God, and all of a sudden, you're an edge. Oh my goodness, what, what, what is God going to say to me? Or, right? And you don't, wanna, you don't want to neglect that. There's a certain respect and fear when somebody comes speaking in the name of God. But we can now with, right, a, a peace and with understanding and with wisdom from the Word of God say, you're not bringing a revelation from God. We already have it. 
unless you're speaking in, through, and from the Word of God, from what God has already accomplished, uh, you're not a prophet or an apostle of God. So let's take a look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, verse 20. We hear the following there. Let's pick it up from verse um, 19. And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. It's interesting, right? Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, even from the Old Testament, we are receiving here a rule. They're going to come, all kinds of prophets and, and, you know, and people, and they want to want to summon spirits and this and that. We have the Holy Writ. If they don't speak according to this law, according to the testimony, they have no light in them. Do not listen to them. Okay? <clears throat> Let's go. So notice here reference to the law, to the testimony. So let's go further back to trace this all the way to where it comes from. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter, um, Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, we hear the following there. Deuteronomy 18, Okay, it says, this is the reference to, okay, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So notice here that um, there is the law and the testimony, and this goes all the way back to Moses. When Moses, when you find in the story of the, the the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that after the law was given, right, uh, God commanded Moses um, to, to put this law uh, inside the ark. And he was placed there. Um, and then the testimony of this law, and later on um, certain the scriptures were always in the temple. As they were recorded, they were kept, right, by the scribes. They were kept by the priests uh, in the temple. So the Holy Scriptures are the law, the testimony, and then as it comes to be known, the law, the prophets, and the writings. For during this time in which the Old Testament canon is unfolding, the reference is to the law, to the testimony, and to the prophets that speak according to that covenantal word that has been given in the Torah. Because it's a covenant that God has made with Israel. And that covenant uh, presents a continuity with the promise given to Abraham. As we will see, and we're going to tie this up on Sunday in a very interesting way. Because um, if you remember... We said that 
um, typology, the types in the Old Testament, they have an immediate fulfillment that awaits a final fulfillment, right? So there's going to be a continuity between the Mosaic Covenant and what is to come. But also that immediate fulfillment in the Old Testament is partial. It's not inclusive of all that God has in store for the final fulfillment that is in Christ. So there is an already but not yet character and nature to the Old Testament Scriptures. And we see it here. So Moses awaits a greater Moses. The Old Testament Scriptures await the continuation and finality of the very Word of God, the prophetic Word of God in Moses awaits a final and a greater prophetic Word that fulfills and completes the Old Testament canon. And we see it here in one verse. Notice, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Who is that prophet? Christ. And then we hear in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament, with the apostles, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Right? <clears throat> so we see then a continuity. A continuity that implicitly shows that Moses is not it. So there is indeed a prophetic word that is given to the people of Israel. But that prophetic word and that movement of God through Moses and the prophets... There is an initial fulfillment, but that is partial, awaiting a final and a complete revelation and fulfillment. Let's take a look at Exodus 24. Exodus 24. So we see here the prophetic office, right, in Moses. Hmm? Exodus 24. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 4, we hear in Exodus 24, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning. Notice, he wrote all the words that the Lord gave him. That's Exodus 24, 4. So, he wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. Oh, there's already a book here. <laughs> there it is. There's holy writ. This is already inspired, breathed out scripture. Hmm? That is the law that God had given him that he had written. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Interesting. So this is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Hmm? That becomes obsolete then at some point. And notice here that there is a what? It's not unilateral as in the promise of grace in which Abraham is in, in, in a deep sleep. Here, when the Mosaic Covenant and the terms of this law 
are read, pronounced in the, in the hearing of the people, it calls for their obedience. It calls for them to sign and say, we will do it, right? And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So there's a bilateral covenant here. These are the terms you must obey. So we know what happened. They didn't obey. And the curses of the covenant fell on them, which had to do with the land. Okay? Had to do with the land. They were exiled from the land as it had been threatened under the Mosaic covenant. So the covenant of the law is not to save them or to condemn them. Because by being, by virtue of being born to Adam, you're already born condemned. <laughs> because Adam violated the covenant of works that God made with him in the Garden of Eden. So the Mosaic covenant is, is a witness. It's a witness to blessings and curses on the basis of obedience. And testified... On the, on the basis of the land. The land was going to be the instrument, the medium, to show that if you obey, there's blessings. If you disobey, there's curses. So this covenant was typological. In, in, as we will see, and we're going to speak of that uh, next, uh, this Sunday, because it threatened curses and it promised blessings on the Basis of obedience to the law. Of obedience to the law. So we will have more to say on that. Okay? But we see here, the, the, the more immediate point that we wanted to make is that Moses wrote. And that Moses read. So this is already Old Testament canon at work here. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Okay, Moses is writing here the law that God is giving him. Obviously, Moses wrote the whole Torah, the five books, the whole Torah. But the specific reference to, to the book of the covenant, the law, in this case is the Ten Commandments, uh, the laws that God has given Moses, and the stipulations here for Obedience and curses and blessings and all of that. <clears throat> so that's basically um, the book of the covenant, the book of, of the law. That there could be other, other um, references and other contexts in which, like when they find the book of the law, that may be inclusive more of the narrative of the deliverance from the, like, as, as in the case of Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy recapitulates the whole history, right? Right, the whole history of the Exodus, yeah. So like a restatement of the law with the narrative. Um, so it, it's a covenant between the people that God has saved from Egypt. And here is this law, which is our standard of righteousness, but... 
This, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments here comes in a covenantal context of works. If you obey, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you shall be cursed. Where? In the land. So that this will typologically and tutorially serve to lead and deliver the people to the covenant of grace, to, uh, to Christ. <clears throat> um, our time is, is almost up here. Let me just read. Uh, let's go to 2 Kings. Let's go to 2 Kings and see further here in the history of Revelation. 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 8. 22 verse, uh, let me see, did I get this right? Yeah, actually, yeah. 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So this is during the Reformation. Uh, not the, obviously, <laughs> the Protestant Reformation, but um, after, I think, um, um, Manasseh, Manasseh and uh, other kings of Israel that had been really evil, and then you have like, like a revival. And it says, I have found, notice how it starts, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Repentance, right? A repentance that, obviously, we have a lot to say on that when we speak of repentance. Because notice here the, the, pro, the progression and the revelation of, of, uh, of, of God's redemptive plan and work. It's opening up. He has given the promise and he has given the law. And he commands Israel The prophets are like attorneys that are presenting a case before Israel saying, you have failed to keep covenant with God. In other words, they don't, they don't put aside the Mosaic covenant. They don't put aside the law. They, the, the prophets keep making reference to it and calling people to obedience on that basis and prosecuting Israel for their lack of righteousness and obedience to the book of the law. And what would be the response to hearing the law? In this case, it's one of repentance. Now, repentance doesn't mean that now they fully obey the law because no one obeyed it. But it does mean that you are drilled and torn in the heart and there is a disposition in you that wants to respond to God in faith and in love and in faithfulness, in covenant faithfulness. So that's what we see unfolding. Eventually, what we see then, the prophets continue to make the case to prosecute Israel's covenantal failure 
but then to speak of a better covenant. To speak of a time to come in which God is going to do a mighty work. And that's already pointing ahead, right? To Christ. So these are sort of like those two covenantal wings that we must keep and put in context and be able to... Because if not, you're flying it out. And it's all one covenant. It all becomes law to everyone. And, you know, we need to obey this. Yeah, we do need to obey them. In fact, we are under... under uh, duty from God to do and to obey His law, but we fall short. Hence, the blood of Christ and the new covenant in His blood. And, and consequently, by the Spirit, we begin to bear fruit according to this righteousness of the law that God has put in our hearts, but never fully keeping it, never fully, you know, obeying it, Always falling short, but now under the terms of the new covenant, in the blood of Christ, the covenant of grace, we have already been justified. And thus, by faith, we uphold the law. Yes, this law has not been set aside. It has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. What has been set aside is the Mosaic covenant, because we have been placed into a new covenant, a new arrangement, new terms, for us to relate and to live with and before God. Does that make sense? And let's, uh, let's finish it up here. Um, as we notice, so we have gone back and forth. The New Testament canon, making reference to the Old Testament canon. The New Testament testifying to itself in Christ. The Old Testament also testifying itself, but also in the Mosaic covenantal context that also testifies to Christ, but without disregarding the way that God is working in the Old Testament until we come then to the words of Christ here in the book of Luke. And in Luke chapter 11, we hear the following. Luke 11, verse 49, beginning in verse 49, it says, Oh, yeah. This is, uh, this is another scripture here. It's interesting. Uh, in Luke 11, verse 49, Jesus says, Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. This is Jesus speaking that the blood of the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. So the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was a prophet during the time of Malachi. So notice there the length that Jesus quotes for the prophetic word and the witness of the, of the martyrs. It doesn't go beyond that. So this is another internal evidence of canon uh, from the mouth um, of Jesus. Let's stop there. Any, any questions on the canon of Scripture tonight?